This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Percussionist, composer, and multi-Grammy Award winner Dame Evelyn Glennie has been profoundly deaf since the age of 12. Using her entire body to feel vibrations, she connects to music and sound in a unique way and is determined to teach the world how to listen. Paying attention, that's what listening is, really, and it's actively deciding whether you want to listen. So listening isn't about healing or being specialized in one thing or another. It's just simply, are you paying attention? You're listening to Speaking Soundly, the podcast that explores the art of artistry. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. As a musician in New York City, I get to perform with some of the world's greatest artists every night. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with these inspiring performers as we lift the veil on talent to hear about their process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. Right now, I'm watching you sit in front of a rack of what seems to be hundreds of percussion instruments, and I know that you have more than a 1,000 in your collection. There seems to be no end to what you can make music with. Do you remember your very first instrument? There was always an upright piano in the house, and I'm a farmer's daughter, and, and so I was brought up on a farm in the northeast of Scotland. And uh, there seemed to be this piano in the house. It was more of an ornament than a, a piano. So I think for me, it was a natural thing to just clamber onto the, the piano stool and like any infant, you know, go bang, bang, bang on the keys. And I suspect that was the first sort of musical instrument. But then I saw on television the clarinet. I loved how it looked. I liked how it was played. And I really wanted to learn the clarinet. And so I started playing the clarinet for, for a year. And that was when my hearing was really deteriorating. And so my parents asked perhaps I would 
think about giving that up because of the amount of pressure on, on the head. And then at the age of 12, I saw percussion and I took a fancy to percussion and then gave that a go. And that was that, basically. I have to ask you, though, learning to play an instrument well for any 12-year-old is hard enough. But despite your hearing impairment, you went on to master several percussion instruments at a very early age. When you were younger, what kept you going? What was your motivating force? Uh, it's a really interesting question. And I, I think in all honesty, what has been the overriding thing is curiosity. And that comes with improvisation because then you're starting from no roles, really. And, you know, I remember my very first percussion lesson at the age of 12, and, and it consisted of my percussion teacher who visited many schools throughout the northeast of Scotland. And he said, Evelyn, take this snare drum away and I'll see you next week. Now, I was confused and disappointed because I wanted some sticks in my hand and I didn't know what to do with this drum at all. And so over the week, you know, I sort of looked at it and looked at it again and, and you know, just put it on different surfaces and then began to tap it and scrape it and thump it and tickle it and did all sorts of things with it. But what I did discover was whether it was a kitchen table or on a cushion or on my bed or on a bit of gravel or on a stone or on the grass or whatever, it actually resonated a little differently. And, uh, and as I began to explore this drum, there was no sticks and no stands. It was quite literally, he just said, here's the drum. And he asked me how I got on. And I said, well, I, I've got no idea. I said, you know what I was doing, really. And he said, Evelyn, please create the feel of a tractor. He knew I was a farmer's daughter. And I thought, ooh, right, the feel of a tractor. So suddenly in my mind, I had this whole orchestra of tractors. And I thought, right. And my dad had just bought a new tractor. And so we had our old rickety tractor and this brand new spanking, you know, shiny tractor. The old rickety one was was like a lumpy roll, you know, the engine. The brand new one was like a bit of velvet. So I could show the feeling of the new one and then the little of the old one. And then I thought, okay, is this a tractor that is stationary with the engine off? In which case we can just look at the snare drum and that's a tractor. Or, you know, is it a tractor in third gear and first gear? Is it going up a hill? Is it, you know, going along a smooth road? Is it going along a bumpy road and so on? Suddenly it was my choice as regards to the feel of that tractor. And my teacher didn't say, Evelyn, please create the sound of a tractor. It was the feel. And when you're thinking about feel, you have to pause and think, what is my experience with that tractor or with whatever it is? And then it becomes your story, your emotion, you know, it becomes your journey. And then you can decide what you want to do and how you do that. So from that point of view, I've never had an issue. I find the exploration and the curiosity the easy part. However, it, it's making sure that the, the, the body, so this kind of engine, as it were, is manipulating the object, you know, how you want it to be manipulated, that you've got the energy to do that, that you've got the various techniques that you need. So that's why I'm a big believer in any kind of exercise or scale or 
or anything that you find in a tutor book or method book or whatever, it becomes an experience rather than an exercise. Wow, that's really inspiring. You know, I've watched you play and the music that you perform is so technically challenging, yet it's perfect when you play it. I have to ask, do you ever make mistakes? Oh, yes, absolutely, every day. You know, I don't really see them as mistakes as such. They're not mishaps, they're, they're things that naturally happen. Now, if something is happening whereby it's happening over and over and over again, so if the same thing is happening over and over again, then, you know, I take a step back and think, okay, physically what's going on? And, and so I will analyze it from uh, a percussionist's point of view, from a musician's point of view, and really take note of all of the elements that are happening there. Um, However, if it's something whereby it's a case of, oh, actually, I meant for that to uh, have a, a different type of crescendo or a different type of dynamic or a different type of feel or something, I don't see that as a mistake as such. That's just a sense of discovery. And then you can analyze that in such a way was, well, did you feel a bit timid there coming up to that moment? Uh, were you worried about that moment? Or was your mind somewhere else at that moment and so on? But it's when things happen over and over again, that's where you have to think, well, is this a, a mistake that needs sorting out? So it's almost like seeing a weed in your garden and you have the option of leaving that weed or is this something that absolutely needs to be weeded out immediately and sorted out? Um, otherwise, you might then need a spade to weed it out and so on. Similarly to the way you play, your ability to read lips is impeccable. How did you develop this? And do you think your musical sense helped you in any way? Well, with something like the lip reading, which actually is extremely exhausting, and, and that's one of the reasons why I do live by myself, because it to be with people is, is extremely exhausting. And I don't mean that in a detrimental way, but it, it just is. Or I try to avoid large groups. Obviously, I have to work with orchestras and so on. But as far as um, socializing in, in large groups and so on, I try to avoid situations like that. And I try to create get-out uh, situations whereby I can just withdraw from a situation and just sort of spend a little moment by myself to get the energy back again. Because listening and lip reading are two very, very exhausting things. And that also applies to when you're practicing, you know, listening as you're practicing. That can be very tiring and you just need time away from that and, and then come back a, a bit more fresh and so on. But the whole lip reading process, I think, actually happened as I was losing my hearing and hadn't really realized it before. So I found that I was looking at people more. I was paying attention to uh, the body language, to the face language, to the way the eyes moved, how the face moved and all sorts of things. And then I worked very closely with my mother, actually, who um, worked with me in front of a mirror. And, you know, we would really develop the real subtleties in lip reading. And, uh, and then I sort of began to realize that heaven's, you know, lip movements change depending on the accent. And, you know, that was something that I hadn't really uh, tuned into as such. And so obviously when I moved to England, uh, you know, I was then discovering 
many different ways of talking, the speed, the, the use of the lips, the, um, you know, how the tongue is different in the mouth and certain consonants or vowels are um, hanging on longer than perhaps in, in uh, a generic Scottish accent, which can be more clipped and all sorts of things like that. And then as I traveled more, I began after many, many trips, you know, began to know the difference between an Australian and a New Zealander, or in some cases, uh, the difference between a generic Canadian accent and a generic American accent. And it's, it's quite unbelievable, but once you do get those subtleties, it's just like music, you know, the, the difference between striking on this bit of the bar to that bit of the bar, you're paying attention unbelievably, but that builds the communication, you know, it builds the presence. And, you know, that's why the face-to-face -face aspect is just so important when we work with people. Right. You were an integral part of the movie Sound of Metal, which I recently watched again. And I think it's an amazing movie, but I'm curious if you think it accurately tells the story of what it is to experience profound deafness. Well, I think it's absolutely one of the best films I've ever come across um, that deals with the psychological aspect of losing your hearing in a film that is, however long it is, 90 minutes or whatever. I mean, it's such a short time to try to portray such a profound thing. But I thought they did it extremely well. And it raised a lot of um, questions and, and conversations, you know, and whereby it would have given people a much better understanding to think that, wow, this sense cannot be put into a box um, that perhaps we might have imagined it could have been. And it just was so good um, to address some of the psychological aspects because, you know, depending on when you've lost your hearing or how much you've lost of your hearing and then what capacity you are in, I mean, as a musician, it's, it's, there's a lot of things that have to be negotiated. And, uh, and in that film, the character, of course, was a musician. And so therefore, he thought his whole world had caved in. And for a period of time, yes, it had caved in um, because he was quite literally thinking that deafness means silence and he couldn't hear anything. And he hadn't yet discovered the opportunity of opening the body up to feel that resonance. So seeing this journey, I think, was very important for the public. Um, seeing the journey of making the decision to have a cochlear implant, that's a massive decision. There's so many aspects to consider there. And then the unknown afterwards of having that cochlear implant. It doesn't mean that you just hear everything in a rosy way again. It isn't like that at all. So it's being thrust into this world of yet a different oral landscape that physically you have to negotiate and mentally as well. So all sorts of layers that, that have to be thought about. And I thought the film did a really grand job of tapping into that to allow us to think, oh, crumbs, I hadn't realized that. Or you may relate to someone differently that you know already who is going through that, but you haven't quite understood what. You know, you might think, well, you've got a cochlear implant, so you can hear now, so what's the issue? One of the things that, that we're doing in this country is to try to bring musicians and audiology students together uh, to think what hearing is, what listening is, what do musicians listen to, how do they de deal with different acoustics? So if you're measuring someone's hearing in a particular room that is 
created to measure that hearing and you're fitting them with a cochlear implant and then the next minute that person has to walk out the door onto a busy street you know with all sorts of traffic and a whole different sound world it is extremely daunting so from a well-being point of view from a physical point of view it can be absolutely devastating it, it really can so we've got to give much more thought as regards to joining up the dots mm. You know, the general awareness of deafness, including my own, is very black and white. Like, you can hear or you can't. Do you get frustrated by this lack of understanding? Yes, um, definitely. I think there's a lot we can do through education as regards to the vocabulary we use when we talk about our senses, uh, giving kids lots of different experiences. There's a wonderful exhibition at uh, the British Library in London to do with Beethoven, whereby you can put your elbows on a wooden platform, as it were, and, and place your elbows on that and then put your hands uh, against your ears and you could just feel so much of the vibration. Well, of course, this is something that Beethoven did. And it just gives us a bit of an inclination as regards to what he might have gone through, what he might have experimented with and what he did experiment with. And all the many things he did to try to make that piano an extension of him and the piano almost like an extension of his limbs, just in a way paying attention to our sound environment, I, and I mean really pay attention to that. You know, what is the sound of our kitchen, our, the sound of our living room? What is the sound of the street we walk onto? What is the sound when we walk to school or college or work or get in our car and so on? Um, what is too much sound to it? What, what is too little sound to us? Um, you know, thinking about the frequencies we're exposed to. And if you think of Beethoven with his later string quartets, you know, there were far less sort of higher frequencies. And uh, I mean, for me at the moment, I struggle to hear a hi-hat at certain levels. So therefore the body, when I negotiate a hi-hat, changes in a way so that I can perceive the hi-hat. So it isn't a case of, oh, I no longer hear that hi-hat, therefore I'm going to play louder. It, that's the worst thing you can do because then that impacts the whole physical aspect of playing and therefore there's more strain and more attack and so on. I have to try to, to open the body up more and pay attention more as regards to where I'm feeling those subtleties. During the COVID pandemic, many people temporarily lost their sense of smell and taste. Do you think this symptom that was felt worldwide could actually help people think about and understand the complex nature of their own senses? Oh, absolutely. I think we have the technology, the imagination. We have the history now of thinking very differently about our senses. One person who made huge strides for the medical profession and us, the general public, thinking about our senses was Oliver Sacks. He would go into situations and really be the student. And he wrote so eloquently about those and does not mean that you're not allowed to connect with that sound, because if you think, I mean, to think that deafness equals silence is extraordinary. Yes, there are aspects whereby it's not coming through the ear, and therefore you cannot hear that uh, from a measured point of view, but that does not mean that you're not allowed to connect with that sound, because if you open that body up, it's, it's like a huge ear. It, 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 there's always an entry point to to perceive that sound. It could be seeing the sound. It could be 
feeling the sound. It, it could be hearing an aspect of that sound, but you need time to be with that sound. And I think what we're lacking at the moment is time. And in terms of you connecting with sound, out of all the instruments that you play, do you have one that is your favorite or one that feels the best? I mean, if I could be stranded on a desert island with just one instrument, it would be the bass drum, the orchestral bass drum, without a doubt. It, the low sounds are by far the, the more amazing experiences. All of the high sounds are quite nauseating because they're all in the upper part of the, the body. Um, but yes, I would say the low sounds as far as just for them to have the time to seep through the body, you know, and then you've got more of a chance to be part of the journey of the sound after the impact. And since you feel it so deeply, could you actually describe what this low, deep bass drum feels like? Um, I would say it's like sort of sinking into a pool of, of hot chocolate or something like that. It's, it's, it's like a, a thick sound. It's a friendly sound. It's a cuddly sound. Um, so even although you're looking at a big object, it's a very soft sound. It's a sound that you can touch. Um, so it's almost like hugging a, a, a great big teddy bear or a panda or, or, or something, you know. It's not a scary sound. It's not an aggressive sound. Um, yes, you can play it loud and soft and so on, but that doesn't mean it, it's frightening. Um, it's a sound that definitely you feel as though you're in the object as opposed to beside it or next to it. You are actually in the drum itself, you know, and the drum is up above, it's at the side, it's below you. So it's as though you're in an aquarium or something and, and the fish or sharks or whales, it's all around you. And, and whichever way you turn, you, you feel as though you're in the deep water yourself. It's that kind of image, really, that I have with the bass drum. <laughs> wow. Well, that was incredibly descriptive. You've talked about sound and the feeling you get when you're making these sounds. What about rhythm, the organization of these sounds? Where does that fit in? Well, it's so interesting. Rhythm is what we live off, you know, our heartbeats, our pulse, the, the rhythm of the clouds, the sky, the leaves, you name it. It's it's all around us and, and we are also rhythm ourselves. So rhythm goes beyond just the music. However, there's a rhythm that we can't always see. So we can't necessarily see vibration all of the time. And so sound is vibration and vibration is rhythm. So it's all interlinked. Some aspects of our lives, we can control the rhythm and some, some aspects we, we can't. But rhythm isn't just linked with music. It's everywhere. Amazing. Wow. You know, it's funny. A few years ago at the Met Opera, I was on an audition committee when we had to fill a percussion vacancy in the orchestra. I was really stressed because I didn't know if I was going to be able to tell one cymbal crash or drum roll from another because all the candidates played behind a screen. It was a blind audition. Anyway, after a few, I became an expert and I had a definite opinion on what I liked and what I didn't like. How is it possible to have two people, or in this case, dozens of people, play the same instrument, the same music, but get drastically different sounds out of that drum? Um, if you're asking two players to play on exactly the same snare drum, using exactly the same stick, playing exactly the same piece of music, you will get 10 different 
sounds without a doubt. Um, because the subtleties and how you hold a stick is just based on your own size and shape of, of, of hand and, and the length of your fingers. And what we do comes from the weight of our own body. Of course, my weight is different to another person and, and the sound will be different. It, it just will be different. So I'm five foot two. I've got relatively short arms, et cetera, et cetera, relatively small hands. Of course, I'm going to manipulate the instruments differently than someone who's six foot two, got longer arms or can, you know, do different things to what I can do. And likewise, they won't necessarily be able to do certain things that someone who's five foot two can do. And then there's all of the imagination that you put into it. So I have my own stories with tractors or snow or whatever, and someone else from Chicago might have very different experiences. So we still have snow, but their experiences will be different. How they negotiate that snow story. And that's fun. That's good. Well, Evelyn, thank you so much for talking to me. I have one more question. It's very clear that music is central to your life and your life as an artist. And you've talked about many different ways you connect to it. What do you think it is specifically about music as an art form that makes these connections possible? I think music is very unique to all of the arts, simply because there are no boundaries and the fact that music consists of sound. So you can connect with people who are not necessarily interested in any particular type of music itself, but they might connect with a particular sound. And I think that definitely music allows connections to be made where the spoken word can be a barrier. It can be connected to people in old age. It can be connected to babies whilst they're still in, in their mother's womb and so on. You may not be able to speak a certain language, you know, in a place, and yet music and sound will make that bridge. And so I think music more than any other art form will absolutely connect with more people. And it is often said that life begins with sound and it ends with sound. And even for deaf people, hearing is the last thing to go. By that, I mean the, the feeling of, of vibration, the feeling of the weight of the acoustic of a room and so on. But I think that whilst we're still alive, we're still breathing, that there's opportunities to connect. And that's all about kind of paying attention that's what listening is, really. And it's actively deciding whether you want to listen. So listening isn't about healing or being specialized in one thing or another. It's just simply, are you paying attention? We're lucky to have music, but we're also lucky just to have what we have. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at David Krause Trumpet and go to our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com for show notes, links, and information on all of our guests. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.